This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles, for host Chuck Simon. Hey everybody, welcome to Going in Circles Live. It's Tuesday, and we have a, um, a couple guests today. We're going to talk to uh, trainer Henry Colazzo about Calder as we uh, wind down the, um, the life of, of Calder, now known as Goldstream Park West, in a few weeks. Um, at the end of November, that'll that'll be it for Calder, uh, barring some miracle last-minute uh, change of direction by Churchill Downs, the Stronic Group, uh, the state of Florida. It uh, we're kind of counting down the days and until the end of the end of an era, actually, um, in South Florida. It, it was. Uh, Really, the, the the summer track that uh, came about in, in the early '70s that was a, a fixture on the um, on the Florida circuit, kind of the uh, the summer track versus the the winter track pre, uh, premier type meets of Hialeah and Gulfstream, and um, it was. Um, a very resilient meet, which is kind of an I- irony, considering the last few years have been uh, have not been kind, as um, the track kind of wound up being a political football of sorts. And when Gulfstream started racing year round, it made it very difficult for. Um, for Calder to compete, and and the, the inherent advantages that Gulfstream has over Calder um, came to pass, and uh, eventually Churchill surrendered, more or less ceding the the dates to to Gulfstream, and um, with Gulfstream taking over the the running of the meet at Calder a few years ago, renaming it Gulfstream Park West. Um, Churchill countered by tearing the grandstand down and just um, turned it into a really chaotic situation. And it's, it's a sad situation. We've lost so many tracks these days. And Calder was always a, a, a mainstay. It was a, a summer signal on the simulcast uh, networks that was consistent. It, it was strong. There was a lot of two-year-old racing. And... Uh, a lot of really, really good horses started their career there. A lot, a lot of really good trainers and, and jockeys started their careers there. And um, and Henry Henry was there. Uh, you know, people. Henry's not a, a, a big name trainer, but Henry's been a, around for a long time, and, and he's a solid a solid guy, a solid trainer who was uh, stabled at Calder um, for years. Was was actually. Um, was there when when they were building Calder, so he's been there since the beginning, and uh, and we'll get his his thoughts and uh, 
just hear some stories of of Calder as as uh, as we count down to the to the end. Unfortunately, um, another day, another egregious stewards' decision. The day at Parks one to nine shot got taken down on a questionable call. It was very difficult to tell if the horse actually interfered with another horse or, or what happened, but. Um, at 4 o'clock, we're going to have Pat Cummings of the Thurbert Idea Foundation come on. And, and Pat has been a, um, to say the least, a strong proponent of changing the the way that we uh, adjudicate uh, the rules as it relates to the races, uh, the horses on the track. Um, he's a proponent of, of uh, what they call Class 1 rules where virtually nothing is taken down outside of uh, issues where you know horse crashes through the rail or something like that and the jockeys are penalized separately um there's uh of course there's without anything there's positives and negatives and um we'll talk to pat at four about that and Towards the end of the show, um, we're going to have my friend Gabby Sanchez, who's working for the Cowboy Channel, which is a horse-centric um, cable channel, which is kind of uh, just starting to delve into racing a little bit. And uh, she's been doing some interviews during the Triple Crown season for uh, for the Cowboy Channel, talking to some trainers and some jockeys and... and um, We'll talk to her for a few minutes about uh, about the Cowboy Channel's uh, uh, experiment, I guess, more than, for lack of a better word, about um, getting into thoroughbred racing uh, a little bit and, and perhaps quarter horse racing as well. So we'll talk to her to close the show out. But um, today it's just um, just another example of of uh, the frustration that people feel with these stewards decisions and that you have a one to nine shot that wins by the length of the stretch and he's taken down because of an incident outside the gate where it's not really clear that he caused any of the trouble um and it just seems like uh i mean then they had a, a, a call in the second race where they took the second place finisher down and it just seems as though we're, we're getting it's like flip a coin with these things. Um, there was, it's, uh, and I understand their judgment calls, but perhaps we need to get people with better judgment <laughs> because I just don't. I, it's it's hard to stomach some of the decisions, and we don't really get explanations. And that's one of the things that I think is is something that can be improved upon in that when you make a decision it should be explained and not just um in a perfunctory manner it, it should be explained using the rule that was violated um and saying exactly what what happened what the violation was and, and why this change was made or even in the case if a change is not made, why the change wasn't not made, um, you know what it did not meet the standard. All sports have gotten to the point where 
referees, umpires, officials, decisions are explained. The, the NBA has a last two-minute report where any call made in the last two minutes is reviewed by a, a panel of um, of referees that oversee all the calls that are made in the league, and they're judged as to whether it was the right call or the wrong call. And if it's the wrong call, they'll say, we made the wrong call. And I think that's all anyone really would like, along with some consistency. It's n- There's nothing more frustrating than when you handicap a race or you train a horse and you did everything right. And you were right about the race, and you were right about your horse, and you you win the race. And they take that away from you. And there's, there's, I mean, obvious calls. There's always obvious calls. Just like there's obvious holds in football when a guy grabs a guy's jersey and throws him to the ground, or a face mask, or... um, you know, baseball, a strike right ball right down the middle. But those aren't the problems. The problems are these questionable calls. There was a questionable call at Calder or Gulfstream Park West the other day with a horse that crowded another horse a little bit, but it was so late in the race and, and it really didn't affect the, the, the winner or, the, excuse me, the second place finish. It. Um, it, was a, it was a really difficult you know, takedown, in, in, in my opinion, I, it wasn't the right call, but um, yesterday at Belmont in the last race, a horse clearly, clearly impeded um, uh, the, the horse who wound up finishing third, who, who actually uh, was second at that time, and it was very, very difficult to make the determination that the interference did not cost that horse a placing because it, it almost certainly did. And that's that's the thing is is it just feels like there's no rhyme or reason to this. And and I also I'm cognizant of the fact that these are all different groups of people making these decisions. This uh, the Naira stewards, the Park stewards, the Gulfstream Park West stewards, the Laurel stewards they're all different people. They're different people. They answer to different people. They, the rules in, of racing and, and, and from state to state vary a little bit. They're not all that different. But um, it's just this is a modern problem, and we need to find modern solutions. This wasn't a problem 25 years ago because we didn't see races from all over the country. I watched the parks race on my phone at a red light. I mean, that wasn't that didn't happen in in, in 1990. You didn't watch anything on your phone. You didn't have phones. So this is a problem that that exists in the modern racing structure, and it's not been properly. Um, it's not been properly adjudicated uh, because it, it, it keeps coming up. I mean, almost every week we have at least one call that just does not, that just seems to defy logic. And some days we have two or three. Um, 
and that that's really difficult. It's it's not easy as a better or as a trainer. If you're a trainer, and I understand, like if you're a better, you feel like you're ripped off. But think about a trainer. Think about a guy who might have waited a month, six weeks, eight weeks for this race, for this spot, and the owner who's been patient and, and waited for this, this race and, and, and things finally worked out. And then they just take it away from you based upon a whim or based upon poor judgment. And I've been a big proponent of the, the stewards need more, they need more training and they need oversight. In some cases we're talking Millions of dollars, millions of dollars. When you get to a race like a, a Triple Crown race, you're talking tens of millions of dollars. If it's the Kentucky Derby, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. These are these are things that should not be taken lightly. And I don't know that racetrack managements or the jockey club or what other whatever board of of uh, group feels like they're you know have, have some sort of authority or power i don't know if they just don't get it they don't care or what or, or they're going to take the the approach of well you know what are we going to do what can we do it's judgment calls but people leave people walk away people they when they when they leave they don't always make a grand exit Sometimes they just walk out the door and shut it and don't come back. And a lot of them, I mean, we, as a sport, as an industry, we're not in a position to lose people. We just aren't. It's, it's, um, there's this foolish notion that the, the contraction is going to be good and, it's just not so. We're going to contract ourselves to to nothingness because there's no plan. You had yesterday the Jockey Club giving the award for new owner of the year to MyRacehorse.com. I, I just don't know why that would be something that would be um, would be honored. Basically, it's a billionaire's company, and he's making money off of you know, little people, and they're taking the money out of the game, more or less. And they own 12% of a horse, and hell, it seems like they'd still owe money on the horse. <laughs> so, uh, it's just kind of a tone deafness that, that we have, and that... Um, it's like some of the people at the top of our business don't understand that the people are, are, are fed up of, of getting fed to the lions. They're getting sick of getting fed to the billionaires. They're getting sick of, of just feeling like... The, and this is quotes I've gotten from, from owners and, and other trainers. It's, we're just tired of filling races for, for super trainers and, and billionaire owners. And you can't have just Saturday racing. The sport can't survive. It cannot survive. 
the NFL doesn't just have playoffs. You have to have a, a regular season. You have to have a regular season, not only to, to weed out the, the, the good teams from the bad, but to provide revenue. And we need revenues. This sport needs more money coming in. If only super trainers exist, who's going to bet on this? Especially when there's so many questions of... Um, so many people are partners on so many different levels. And not only partners on, on horses that are put in the gate, but some of them are partners on on stallions and, and things like that. And that that it's just a it's a tough look for, for our sport when when everyone's kind of um, on the same team. And you're either in or you're out. And I'm telling you, people that are out, they're, they're going to stay out. They're going to find other things to do. And I think the quarantine and the COVID and, and all the issues that we've had the last six or seven months have shown that people are learning to live without certain things. The ratings for all sports, all sports, are down. And people are, are learning to to live without things that they haven't had because they haven't had a choice. And they're seeing, well, you know, there's other things that they can do with their free time and, and their, dis, their disposable income. And this is a, a sport that, that hasn't had a whole lot of competition for the gambling dollar for a century and it's operating as though there is no other competition. And believe me, the barbarians are at the gate. Sports betting is just that they're they're gonna uh, they're gonna chew a hole in in the, in the side of our side of our boat. And betting on horses is a far better, far better game than betting on sports. Far better. But sports are understandable. Sports charge less. And sports promote for the player. Just like casinos do. And we don't do that. We ignore the player. And more and more, we're ignoring a big chunk of of the supplier of the product. A, a lot of owners and a lot of trainers. And... It's a. It's just a, a way of of doing things that it just is not sustainable anymore, and that's the frustrating part for me and for so many other people that I talk to about this. And a lot of people are just afraid to, to talk in public because you're essentially criticizing, um, and people in, in horse racing are very sensitive to that. They're just very sensitive people. And they want to be real sport. They want to be a big league sport. They want to be a mainstream sport. But they don't understand that, that the amount of criticism that comes along with that. We've we've missed a lot of criticism just because mainstream media doesn't really pay that much attention to us. And the reaction that we've gotten, uh, you know, we're, we're we're putting in these whip rules that 
don't seem to make a lot of sense. That don't seem like they're going to be beneficial. That that are confusing already. They're different, and it's just a typical reaction to a problem that I don't even know really exists. And that's <laughs> that's one of those those things um, that we're really famous for in this business is kind of creating our own issues and you know put put whip regulations in. And stick with them. But I, I almost laugh when I hear people talk about, well, we don't want to use the stick to encourage the horses. Well, in the end, we're trying to win races. Winning races is still the object of the game. It's competition. It's competitive. People are betting on it. People are, are owning horses to, to win. They're not there to just um, run around and be seventh. It's no fun. But... Um, <clears throat> But we gotta we gotta talk about fixing things. And at four o'clock, when Pat comes on, we will we will hear an earful because Pat is very 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 vocal about his feelings about Stewart's decisions, and he is prepared. He's a very uh, professional, prepared person, and uh, I'll be I'll be interested to to hear his take on today's race. Uh, I think right now we have. Uh, Henry Colazzo, trainer Henry Colazzo. Henry, how are you? Pretty good, thank you. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. Um, Henry, you've been a trainer in South Florida, based in South Florida for I don't want to age you or anything, but a long time. When, when did you first start training on your own? Uh, in '79, um, but I've been around horses since I was a, a young boy. And my family moved back to Florida in 69. And that was actually the last year Topical Park was opening, and they were in the process of uh, building Calder. And uh, I was in high school at the time and going to junior college while they were building Calder. So it was like a, a you know, a natural, uh, you know, progression to, to start working there and going to school at the same time. So, and then it ended up like, uh, I, you know, I couldn't get it out of my, my system. No matter how much I tried, uh, I just got drawn back to the horses. So uh, I had an opportunity in 79 to get my license, and uh, it's been a fortunate and uh, fantastic uh Ride. I've been up and down the country, been around some of the best people, some of the best horses. Uh, this is the only game where the rich uh, eat breakfast with the poor and the poor eat supper with the rich because it's just uh, it's a mixture of everybody. And the one common denominator is everybody loves the horse and puts the horse first, and everybody wants to win. And when you win, it's a team effort, and there's no better party than uh, winning a race with a, with a racehorse because it's so difficult to do, but so rewarding when you do do it. So it's, once you experience that, you're just constantly chasing it. That, that's so true. very fortunate. You know, what, what you said is so true about winning races in the – there's some huge outfits these days, and they make it look easy. But what people don't see 
is they did, they see the winners, but they don't see with some of these guys literally hundreds of horses that aren't winners, and and like you're you're seeing them, and it's making it look easy, but winning is a hard thing because everything has to come together. And uh, I, I you know I let off the show, and we're going to have a, a discussion a little later about uh, Stewart's decisions, and and you know there's been some really you know questionable decisions, and I said you know how bad you feel when you bet on a horse and they take it down. I said, imagine if you were the owner and a trainer, and and also the groom, the jockey, the every, or the exercise bar, everyone else, who have um, you know all their hard work culminates in this horse winning the race, and then they get disqualified because he might have brushed a horse at some point, and um, you know it, it's just very frustrating to do because, like you said, winning is so difficult. Well, it's not only that. I mean, it's the effort, the horse. It's it's so much goes into it. And I guarantee you, I can remember all the times I should have won that I didn't win. And uh, and it just puts a smile on your face because in your heart, you know, it was a winning effort. Right. Even the ones where I got beat straight up by a better horse, but I just got beat by a nose. I mean... Uh, just I had that roller coaster when I ran against uh, XY Jet and when I ran against uh, Imperial Hint. And, you know, God bless my, my longtime owner, uh, made it possible to, uh, to travel with this horse and, and run against some good horses. What, what and, horse is uh, that, Henry? That was uh, Sweet on the Ladies. Mm-hmm. We went to Saratoga and finished third. Went to Tampa and then beat Imperial Hand at Saratoga. He beat us. Uh, X Y Jet. We we faced him a few times and gotten beaten, beaten him. So it's uh, he's he was a really nice horse that uh, I enjoyed immensely, and it was a great opportunity that uh, the four horsemen, my longtime uh, partner and friend, uh, you know. We got to enjoy together, and so many other horses. Uh, Joey Blue Eyes. I mean, that's see, that's the thing. You've got memories. I mean, the money comes and goes, but the wind picture never fades. The memories bring a smile to your face. I mean, my vacation. You know, if you ask me for my memories, it's not so much swimming with the dolphins, but it's hey, going to Penn National and driving. You know the middle of the night to run a horse in a stake race. You know, yeah. Those those things are special, or especially Saratoga. Hopefully someday we make it to the Breeders' Cup. I would love to enjoy it with my uh, with my partners and, uh, and my owners because without them, we don't go nowhere. No, that, that's they true. They've got more invested in it. We've got our soul and, and our blood to it. I mean, the grooms... When a horse is sick, he spends all night, you know, worrying about that horse. The owner doesn't get any sleep, you know. The the trainer doesn't get any sleep. And, you know, everything revolves about that horse, whether it's a $5,000 clamor or a $5 million horse. I mean, you know, you, you worry about the animal because that's what you're there to enjoy. Sure, sure, no doubt. It's got its ups and downs. Well... So you were around when Calder was um, 
system was being built. So, so when it first opened, they had that um, that tartan track. What was that yep. like? Uh, it was uh, it was an experiment, you know, and it led to the poly because eventually, you know, you keep on striving to make you know dirt better than God made dirt, you know, which is a never ending struggle. But uh, it was a uh, something 3M wanted to develop, and um, and so Calder was a test platform for it. And from there, I imagine they developed other products. And, you know, the best thing of all was it, it, it was a practicality because Tropical Park was so far away, right. and the turnpike was being built, and Miami, and the stadium, and the land, and everything. It was just... Uh, pretty much a no-brainer because uh, you know that part of the uh, the county pretty much uh, grew. I mean, it's it's a hub now with the stadium and everything else and the turnpike. Uh, that was a shame because eventually it, the property was worth more than the racecourse. Yeah, that that's the sad part because it was you know Calder. Someone described it to me. They said it was like a self-contained track. It had everything that it needed, and the people stayed there. And it wasn't like there was a lot of you know guys going in, going out. It, it was the same kind of uh, outfits and a lot of two-year-old racing, and and uh, you know a lot of really tough, good tough horses developed at Calder racing there in the summertime as as, as young horses. And trainers and jockeys. I mean, a lot, a lot of the jockeys that ended up in New York came through, you know, South Florida, and you know that that it Calder was a necessity because of Ocala. Ocala grew, the farms grew, uh, people invested money in it, and it was only logical with uh, with with what was going on that, you know, horse racing was blossoming, people were enjoying it. And, and you know, you had Hialeah, you had Calder, and you had Gulfstream. All three of them survived perfectly. And then the bickering started once the state stepped out of it and let us, you know, shoot it out amongst ourselves, which was a shame. Yeah, I remember when... Um when it was like an annual battle between Gulfstream and Hialeah over who was going to get the first dates and who was going to get the second dates. And uh, Calder always, of course, had their own, you know, had the May through November dates. But um, it, it was, uh, you know, such a different uh, a different dynamic there for a while. Yeah, a different mindset, you know. But uh, as progress went on and, you know, gambling blossomed and, you know, the government stepped in and it just, you know, it all, uh, you know, morphed into a uh, unbelievable business as far as gambling on everything and anything now. Uh, I mean, it's, and on your phone even. So, the 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 lure of the racetrack has pretty much been diminished 
Um, God bless. We've got Gallstream and, and uh, Stonic's way of, uh, you know, trying to put some life back into it and keep it afloat. And, you know, the way they got Gallstream set up with the uh, other entertainments and the other ways of drawing people there and the cards that they got and the publicity and, you know, they're, 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 they're keeping the hopes alive that that racing stays in South Florida and that, you know, my kids and their kids will have Galston to go to and, and live horse racing, you know. It's just a shame that, you know, it's it's to a point where uh, the little guy is, is struggling to, to see it all come about. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's uh, it's like that in a lot of areas in society where the the big um, the big guys and the big fish eat up all the little fish. And and the problem with racing is that we need the smaller fish because we have to fill cards on um, on Thursdays and Fridays as well. And we can't have all steak races. We can't have all maiden special weights. And it's, it's like in an apartment building. You can live in the penthouse, but if nobody's taking care of the basement, you're not going to have any heat or air conditioning. If nobody's working on the second floor or third floor, guess what? The penthouse is going to have nothing there. And a barn, you got 400 horses in there at the best, but you can only rotate them and run a certain amount of horses. But it's done, it's eliminated competition mm-hmm. because if, if the horses were spread out to other people, you would see that other people are as comparable as those that have 400, 500 horses, if not more so, because I guarantee you anybody that has a big outfit doesn't see his horses train. How can you take care of five gardens when, when you can only weed out one? The other four, you're depending on other people. And people are paying to do a job, but you're pretty much delegated. And that's, in my opinion, what's going to hurt racing more than anything is that they allow too many people to monopolize. Since the beginning of time, we've realized monopolies really don't... uh, survive long because they kill out the competition and you know and, and people just you know it's just not the way to do it in my mind and that's my opinion and it's a blessing that would be got Gulfstream to run at and that they want to do it and they're looking to new ways of doing it and new ways to attract people into the business and into racing and the publicity that they've been putting out and the events they've been doing, you know, it's it's the only way they're going to survive. Gulfstream is kind of um, it's it's kind of resilient in that no matter what um, what they put out on the racetrack, people bet on it. The signal is very strong. They, they do. Um, a disproportionate okay. amount of money based upon uh, versus the quality in the summertime, 
and, and it, it's a, it's a and it's kudos. It's kudos it's it mean, is. That's, that's a great job Billy Badgett's doing, and Mike Lakeway, and and the people above them that let them do their job. See, that's the problem. Is a lot of times corporate is sitting back, and it's a bunch of lawyers that have not even seen a horse making horsemen decisions. And that's where the mistake is made. How can you have a garage that fixes cars and not be a mechanic? That's true. It's very true. You, and, know? you know, the one positive about um, about that, about having a strong handle, is that um, we're seeing other tracks around the country that are really struggling because they derive so much of their purse money from alternate you know, gaming from from slots and things, and when the casinos were shut down, um, places like parks where ninety percent of their purse money comes from the slots. When they're not when they're not earning any money, um, the the purse accounts just get drained, and you know there's just not enough money bet on those races to even come close to. Um, it, it's one of the, the real failures in the state of Pennsylvania, and and not only for for thoroughbreds, for standard breds as well, and that the standard bred breeding program in Pennsylvania is, is, is very strong. They have a, a really strong sire stakes program. The problem is nobody bets on it. And when the government, uh, state governments, uh, they, they live for for revenue sources. There's they're never going to be in a situation where they're going to have excess revenues, especially these days, and especially after all the, the hits they've taken from COVID. But at some point, they're going to come after our revenue. And, you know, and when you're in a state or you're on a track where 90% of your purse money comes from slots, well, if they come and they take 25% of your slot money, well, you're going to see, <laughs> you're going to lose 25% of your, of your purses. And you're not, able to control your own destiny because uh, you're getting money from from a different place other than people betting on your races and that's the one positive that that we have in in um in south florida that a lot of other places don't have um you you see california they're they're struggling in california really struggling because the handle is 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 way off they have a very small horse population um and they don't get any money from alternate sources. They get zero. So it's uh, you know one of the reasons why the Stronic Group has not been able to uh, emulate Gulfstream success out there is is guys like you can't couldn't couldn't survive um, in Southern California because you have to charge one hundred and ten dollars a day to break even. When, and when you look down your shed row, you don't probably see a whole lot of horses that owners are going to be willing to spend one hundred and ten dollars a day to um, to train, and and that's something here that we're able to do it a little cheaper, and uh, and we're able to draw from um, you know from from like you said from Ocala and and uh, you know have a lot of babies, a lot of two year olds here that that um, you know don't require a lot of vet work and things like that, and and uh, it, it's just you know every, every Every region has different uh, pluses and minuses, but but we are very fortunate in South Florida to have um, you know such a strong following and um, 
and it, it's uh, you see the purse. You see the purses here. Uh, foundation with Ocala. You see the purses the here went up. Yeah, I mean the purses went up here and, and during the COVID, and I, that didn't happen anywhere else. Everywhere else it went down, but here they went up because there was so much. They did money. a fantastic job, Chuck. You gotta, you gotta agree. That for us, to only been down one day, and that was because they had to address the jocks room and, and make sure that they stayed safe. That from day one, Billy Badger's been making it mandatory for masks. Temperatures being taken. I mean, they've they've been on top of this since day one, as far as you know, preventing any sort of uh, of uh, pandemic hitting us. And and we really never uh, skipped a beat. And, no, we didn't. And and with the casinos being shut down, we weren't getting our pieces from that. But yet we still survived, and we had enough. Where we could have a good meet, regardless of the money that was being pumped in from the casinos. But more than anything, is the safety factor. I mean, they from day one they said no owners, nobody. If you didn't work back there, if you wasn't a you know necessity, you know you just weren't allowed there. And they're still it's still that way. And while the rest of the country is lackadaisical. You still get a hundred dollar fine if you don't have a mask on the backside. And you know what? God bless them. You know, I mean, they're keeping us all safe and they're keeping the game going. You know, you, you go kudos to them when you go, when you rewind it, Henry, and you think about about keeping you know the sport going at, at a time when everything else was shut down, and exactly. you wonder if if we hadn't kept going. Because Oakland eventually closed, and Tampa eventually closed, and Foner eventually closed. But Gulfstream stayed going, and, and the, the template that they set was followed by a lot of other tracks. The, the well, Chuck, they had alcohol sanitizer where you didn't even have to pump it and touch where somebody else touched. You had a foot pedal, and you pressed that foot pedal, and sanitizer would come out, and wherever you went, that's located and wherever you went they made you stay six feet apart and it was like i mean they didn't allow more than two people in the paddock they were very very strict and they didn't wait for the outbreak to happen they were proactive and if they weren't proactive i guaranteed you we would have followed suit like the rest of the nation but you know, kudos goes to Billy and, and Mike for, I don't for think, uh, being able to do what they've done. Henry, I don't think people realize, I don't think a lot of people on the backside realize how badly the local officials wanted to shut us down. There was, well, there was a group of people of that absolutely Saturday. positively wanted to mm-hmm. shut down. And, um, you know, they staved them off and, and they showed that it could be done and it was and and that's you know like you said kudos to them and uh it it wound up i think in my opinion racing opened up in other areas because of the success that that was um was happening in south florida yes we showed it could be done and and let me go back to the uh, template let me go back to colder Mm -hmm. now 
you start like you said you started in uh, in, in the 79 and when did they actually 72 when i was walking hawks and but you started uh, I mean, training I, yourself I, I, in 79 yeah i started training i got my trainer's license in 79 but actually i I was walking hot as soon as the backside opened up. A good friend of mine, Norman Beatty, was an assistant for uh, 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 Schumann, H.B. Schumann. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was an assistant, so I got a job walking hot. And while I was going to school during the summer or whenever I had a break, I mean, if I wasn't, if I wasn't working on the backside, I was on the front side reading the race form. You know, so it was like, it's, uh, you know, it was something that uh, it it, it just, no better way of having a job or working than when it's enjoyable and satisfying, you know. So it's like you found something you love, you know. I was blessed enough to be able to do it pretty much all my life. Do you remember when they took the tartan track out and they went to the sand track? Yep. And that was uh, really, uh, well, I remember all the dangers and accidents and and, and tartan. I mean, it was like falling on, uh, you know, (laughs) it was like playing uh, football out on the street. But, uh, you know, they, it, they switched it over to the sand from the bay, from Biscayne Bay. Mm-hmm. and uh, That's where it came from, and, Biscayne Bay? Yeah, that, that was a special sand. Uh, the Cessas were able to bring it in, built the track. And I tell you what, they built it knowing that it rains during the summer. That's yeah. why they had the tartan to begin with, because of the weather. And so much rain that we'd get that, you know, literally you couldn't see horses, you know, at the starting gate. And uh, the track would just be as safe as ever. And basically that sand track is seems to be over at Gulfstream now. Because I've been at Gulfstream, so, you know, every year when we went over, and it's definitely it's changed. And... Uh, it seems to me more and more it looks like the Calder surface. Right. And more and more it's getting safer and safer. You know, it's and, it's uh, uh, it's so funny because I always worked for, you know, outfits out of out of New York and um you know, we used to th- we used to say that that when we would start coming in at the end of November and early December that that they would make the track deeper at Calder because they didn't want us running over there. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember I was working for for Alan Jerkins, and this has got to be ninety four, ninety five. And uh, Alan would run; you know, like he, he he was so paranoid, that, like he was going to keel over, that he, he wouldn't. Uh, he, he would have a hard time with modern the, the modern twenty twenty training techniques and the way people want things done, where you pass up races and you know you, you look eight months or eight weeks out and nine weeks out. So I remember we had a one a, a horse and and um, it was a, a relatively expensive yearling. I think it was from Mrs. Hoffman, Georgia Hoffman. I, I think this is I can't remember the name of the horse, but he was a two year old and he broke his maiden. He ran at Belmont, ran okay. We ran him over at Aqueduct and he ran a little better and he broke his maiden going a mile. 
And it wasn't like a great race. I mean, he won, but it wasn't like it was... Uh, um, he, he didn't exactly streak across the line, you know. But he was kind of a big horse, and, and, and he thought racing would help him. So we came down to Gulfstream, and uh, we were... You know, we, we would ship in in the first week of December, pretty much every year. That would be the that would be the week that, uh, as soon as they went to the inner track at Aqueduct, that then we would leave. So we got there, and he would never tell me when horses when he was going to enter horses. He would just put them in, and not, you know, I'd find out when the overnight came out, just like everybody else. So he puts one in a Calder, and I found out because um, the guy who did the shuttle. Um, came over and said line up the trip <laughs> yes <laughs> said well uh, you know have your horse ready at nine or 10 yeah, 30 yeah, yeah. i'm like what horse <laughs> you know? so he puts the horse and we've been there maybe a week so we go over there and it was an optional it was an a other than optional 16 claimer and this was before new york had those type of races new york right. at that point still had uh allowance races claiming races and and that was it you know there wasn't a whole lot of optionals and things like that so I'll never forget, it was, it was optional 16, and we get in the race, and um, <laughs> we go over there, and of course, you know, it's Alan Jerkins, and he, I can't remember who wrote him, I, I think Cole wrote him, and um, he goes, and he just, uh, it was a two-turn mile, you know, they, you run two-turn miles, and he'd run an aqueduct one-turn Yeah. and he just struggled, he labored, because the track was just super deep, and... Mm-hmm. Um, he got beat. He finished second, and he got beat by a horse who was in for the tag. <laughs> and and the chief was like despondent because he said, "How am I supposed to explain to this lady your three hundred thousand dollar horse got beat by a sixteen claimer?" <laughs> he goes, he goes, the, he goes, be prepared. They'll be taking they'll, the vans. Will be coming to pick them horses up anytime now. <laughs> I'm like, you know, he was something special. Guy I remember, I remember uh, the jock came back and he's like, "Man, he just, you know, he just struggled with this track." And I was like, "Yeah, because you know, we, yeah, we just got here and and you know, he's running on completely different tracks. The Aqueduct main track was was kind of tight, and this this track was like they went three quarters in like one fourteen a mile, like one forty, yeah, 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 and, and the yeah. horse was just exhausted. I remember he slept for like three days that, afterwards. I, uh, that's how it was back then. It was very biased. If you wasn't in the inside, on the inside, going a mile, because mile broke right at the turn. Right. If you wasn't on the inside, and five out, you were dead. You were dead. Because it was just so biased on the inside uh, back in those days when they first switched over to the sand. Mm-hmm. And because then- it, you got to realize they had to, they had to work it, they had to develop it. And, and get the base, you know, all. But as the years went on, it, it was the safest. One of the, you know, a lot of nice horses came out of South Florida. A lot of nice horses. I, I When I started training in 1999, um, Bobby Humphrey was still the racing secretary here. And uh, God bless him. And it, it, I think one of the ironies of, of ironies is that Bobby hated turf racing. <laughs> 
I remember he used to have a, <laughs> that, that sign on his door, office door, was if you're asking for a turf extra, just turn around and go the other way, you know? Like, or the answer is no. <laughs> and, and now yeah. they've, they've got a race named after him, and it's a turf race. They <laughs> have five-eighths on the grass. Yeah. He like Brent Caesar. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Bob, he had a mind that was very aggressive. I mean, he had that, uh, remember that a uh, couple of years where he had all those uh, special races like the wrong way, the King George wrong way, yes. a mile and a quarter, right. and two races at the same time. Right, one on the turf and on the dirt. Yes, I, I do remember yeah, that. Yeah. He, he was he, he was something, uh, and and it, it, it worked. I mean, you know, those were the good days. Really yeah. good days. The s- summit very, of speed. Very, he, very good. He developed the summit of speed, correct? Yeah, because that was a. I remember that was a big hit. Uh, I mean, no one ever even dreamed about shipping to Calder in the summertime, and then he put he together that day where it just all of a sudden they were getting. Oh, I remember Lost in the Fog shipped in there. I mean, it was it was like the big sprint race for three year olds. Yeah. And I mean, he had great at stakes. I mean, he developed uh, he developed races, and uh, he was. He, you know, he was taken from us too soon. I mean, yeah, it really is a shame. Uh, he's a, he, him and the chief are up there right now. You know, <laughs> no, it's uh, you Looking know. It, down <laughs> sometimes I think we, we lose some of the. Uh, I, I think that this racing business has lost a lot of the, its characters, and a lot of. Um, there's a lot of corporate mentality that takes over because the racetracks are now owned by corporations in a lot of ways, and um, the the outfits, the, the big outfits with all the horses, uh, and it's the same with the sales. You go to the sales, and there's three or four consigners that have massively big, um, you know, consignments, and and then you know there's the medium guys, and then there's the, the small guys, but but that's that's kind of the way of the world, I guess, and and the, you know Walmart is uh, does the same thing. And, and they come into a town and, and they offer everything and it's cheaper and they, they drive everybody else kind of out of business. And uh, Yeah, I mean, they not only did they take out the appliance store and the hardware store <laughs> and the gardening shop and the, all the clothing, I mean, they've got everybody, you know, there's nothing that they don't sell. So, and whatever, but that's, society that's the way we're, you know, that's when, when you just look at a racetrack nowadays i mean think about how it used to be where you went to the track and um there was a barber shop at yeah. those tracks there was a guy a shoeshine guy there was a couple different dining options and you went there for the day and you bet the races that were you know, there at that track, and and that that was it. You you didn't have all these other um, things that you have nowadays at racetracks where they have uh, slot machines and casinos, and and they have you know full card simulcasting from literally everywhere. You can you can you can bet to places across the across the world, not just across the country. And uh, yeah, it's a different. Australia. It certainly is a different world, and and that's like my memories of Calder. Because I never spent a summer here. I, I would be here in, um, I, I would only generally be here in December. And, and we liked going, you know, we'd come down and it was a nice little break for us because we'd run hard. 
and uh, you get down here and, and you know we have a couple days you go to the races and just kind of hang out and happy to get out of the cold and put shorts yeah, on and, you, and hang I, out I can picture the chief outside with no shirt on with a, 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 a burlap rag just swat, flies off of a big horse grazing you remember that empty field oh. right there where they had the trailer oh yeah we, we, and he'd just be there every afternoon like clockwork you know and you didn't want to leave the barn you know it, it was it was it was it was a city amongst in itself yeah no doubt it was uh it's 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 uh you know it's a different era it's a different world and yeah, you know, it, and God bless it's still horses, and it's still surrounded around them, and, and pretty much everybody that works there has got the same kind of heart, you know, so it's just maybe speaking a different language. <laughs> one, of, one, of my, one of my biggest memories, uh, or best memories of Calder was um, um, being there one day on, on Christmas, and there was a, I remember getting there, and I, I was, like, astonished at the crowd, it was a giant crowd. This, this has got to be in the nineties too. Oh yeah! And there was a huge crowd of people, and they had a, I think they had a turf race as the stake that day. And I kind of remember, you know, that. But um, it was it, the place was just packed, and you know, someone Christmas said, "Well, Day handicap." Yeah, the Christmas Day handicap. And and then, uh, oh, that was great. Yeah, that was. And I said, "You can't do that. that now. You can't run on Christmas the, because nothing uh, else is open." Yeah, well, that was back in the days of the uh, payphones, too. <laughs> Remember, they used to lock yes. at 1 o'clock? <laughs> I told people, I said, you know what, they used to have these, these bays of payphones, and, and one minute to post for the first race, they'd lock them, so you couldn't call your bookmaker. <laughs> but, uh, ah, it, that was fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, there was, uh, there's, there's so many. You know, remember, they, they had the, uh, the $50 window and the $20 window and the $10 oh, window. The, the I am totes. Yeah, when we were kids, we used to be stupid. A little ticket, $2 ticket, and you had to get in a different line to buy a different kind of ticket. Trifectas were long. Yeah, yeah. And the color, the tickets were different colors. Absolutely. That's when it was easy to pick up tickets on the ground. <laughs> that, that, that was probably my first official job as a kid when I was five years old. My dad would bring us to the track and we'd go pick up tickets, and at the end of the day, we'd go through. Be a stupor all we, day long. We, we'd always, we'd always, we'd always find a couple people had thrown them out, or you know, there was a late scratch or something, and yeah, we. we I, I found it. I was walking out one time and I found a stack of trifectas in a rubber band. I picked it up, looked at it, found a winning ticket for $137. Remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) I'll tell you what happened to me one time. I was leaving the old Gulfstream and um, a guy was walking in and... uh, I handed him my program. He said, you want your program now? Here, you got your program. He said, who do you like in the last race? I said, I like the five. And I didn't even have any idea who was even in the last race. And I was, I got home later on. I was watching the replays. And uh, that's another thing. People forget. We used to have replay shows because that was the yeah, only place yeah, we yeah. could watch. Bob we Patty. could actually watch the races. And, uh, they had the race. <laughs> you know what happens? The, the, the five wins the last race, and the horse was like 75 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I was thinking, goodness. there's a guy out there who thinks I'm either an absolute genius or the world's biggest idiot. 
<laughs> for walking. Well, you are heading in the wrong direction unless you want to take the ball. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that, that was used to happen. People forget that the, the guys would stay outside, and after the eighth race, you know, yeah. to run nine race cards. After the eighth race, they would open the gates and and let people in. So there'd be a usually be a group of you know two, three, four, five guys sitting outside the gate waiting for them to get, waiting for get in free because they didn't want to pay to get in, and uh, they'd ask you for a program, and they'd, they'd go hustle up and, and bet the last race. That's what I used to do when I was a kid. Yeah. Was, you couldn't go to the races in, uh, until you were 21. I remember, okay? remember. And there was no racing on Sundays. Right, right. And we were the first, uh, we, we, we were like one of the last places to let people in, you know, under 21. We were like, you know, no racing on Sundays. I mean, but they, 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 you know, Calder was something. Yeah, it, it's funny that like people these days they they can't even fathom that there was no Sunday racing or that um, that kids weren't allowed on the track. When when I was um, my dad, we would go on vacation um, in the summertime to Long, Long Beach Island in New Jersey, and you know my dad would um, would bring us to Atlantic City, and, and we'd have to sit outside. And he would run back and forth. He'd run. He'd run in, in the side gate and out the side gate, and they had a little. Uh, like a high school football game uh, has the little stands, you know. We sat outside. We we weren't allowed in because we were no one under eighteen at that point was was allowed in yeah. to racetrack. And and like I said, there was no Sunday yeah. racing, and people would like what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used to go through a hole in the fence at uh, Tropical Park and at uh, Hialeah, right behind the tote board. When I was Watch the races. when I was fifteen years old. My first job at the racetrack was at Saratoga at the harness track, and um, I used to drive or drive ride my bike, and uh, I would get in um, the, the the standard bread guys. They don't start as early as the thoroughbred guys, but uh, I would get in uh, the maintenance gate because they wouldn't lock it. They would just uh, they just had a double end snap, and, and you know. I figured this out, and, and I used to park my bike over somewhere, and, and I'd walk in, and eventually they got used to seeing me walking in. I wasn't even old enough to actually work, I don't believe. I think you had to be 16 to work, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, though, it gets, in, it gets in your system, and it's hard to get out. No, and I don't regret one day of it. I mean, maybe regret some of the bets I made, but I don't regret <laughs> one day of it. It's been it's been a good life, Henry. I'm happy that uh, we could get you on today, and I appreciate you giving us uh, some of your time and some of your memories of uh, of, uh, of Calder. Yeah, man. hope to see you soon, bud. You got it. See you later, Henry. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. That was Henry Colazzo. Henry was there at the beginning, Calder. Unfortunately, he's going to be there at the end because it's. Uh, doesn't look like a governor's reprieve is going to come, but uh, but that's that's what uh, what happens in life, and we move on. And now we're moving on to uh, Pat Cummings. Pat, are you there? Hey, Chuck. Hi. Good thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for for giving us some of your time. Um, it's funny. Uh, I have an instant reaction now. Whenever 
I see a disqualification or I see people griping about the disqualification. Uh, it's like the bat signal goes up and <laughs> here comes Pat. <laughs> and I say this it depends in a, how bad it is. <laughs> I, I say this in a, in a, in a positive manner and because yeah, yeah, yeah. what you're trying to do, and, and, and uh, we don't always agree on the method, but um, you have... The, the the best interest of the game at heart and and you you know you're, you're you know the, the foundation that you're working for this is exactly what you guys do you're trying to make things better and and uh and that's something that's that's desperately needed in in, uh, in horse racing and it's been desperately needed and uh disqualifications are are something that's uh that are it's more i, I was saying this in the opener that this is a modern day problem because 25 years ago you only basically knew about what was going on at your track and you only usually saw what was going on at your track and you weren't exposed to the sheer volume of, of races that you're exposed to these days and as you know with social media and the ability to 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 trade information so quickly you're seeing a lot of questionable decisions whereas before if you hadn't been at Saratoga for the Alamuse incident well if you if you lived in uh you know LA you, you might have read about it a couple of days later but you probably never would have seen the video of it and not nowadays it's uh I, like I said I watched the parks race today the the the, the, the first race to take down I, I watched it at a stoplight on my telephone <laughs> so uh, it's it's um, it's a modern day problem, and we need to come up with a modern day solution. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a uh, it's an issue that has grown essentially somewhat out of control. It hasn't been reined in in any way, shape, or form. And with a lot of the things that the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation has espoused over the last uh, two plus years. Uh, you're right. The end goal is to improve outcomes for people who participate in the sport, right? To make the sport better. It's not always as simple as sometimes it might appear, like we support the Category 1 uh, interference rules versus the Category 2. That's a dramatic oversimplification. The reality is we want the outcome, the process, the transparency related to it to improve and therefore lift the standards as we are making modernizing changes to racing and you know your your point is is salient uh, and i started to say this but in just about everything that we're doing we, we try to go back and pinpoint how did x or y or z become an issue how did it get someone out of control? How is it allowed to grow unchecked? And when it comes to the rules on interference, uh, fouls, demotions, what most people would call DQs or disqualifications, I mean, in, a, in North America, we use the term DQ to mean a horse that basically gets put behind another one. You know, it could be wherever the interference took place. Um, everyone else in the world, uh, a disqualification is, is really called a demotion, whereas an actual disqualification is something actually more dramatic, where the horse is totally plucked from the race, 
all the bedding is held and, and it's like the horse is completely thrown out, which is, you know, there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. The reality is we want to increase the standards associated with the sport and everyone should want that. Right. So even if we don't end up with category one interference philosophy, which is basically the global standard outside of North America at this point, then we have to at least have proper reporting, right? We need stewards to be held accountable. Uh, They need to be reporting to the public, explaining why they made the decision, explaining what the rule is, how this was a violation of the rule or not how this uh, is a justified decision or not, you know, if, if, if there is no reason or, or no justification to make the call that they're doing, and to, to put that out in front of the public. I liken it to a, a football game where, you know, how hopeless sometimes it can feel to watch a football game where the refs throw a flag and the camera's looking around and there's kind of a confab of the referees and, and you know, they, they, they go and, and they go to something else and they come back and they're still kind of talking and they're looking at replays and the, 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 the broadcasters are talking about what, what's going on. And, you know, I'm not sure. It might have been uh, illegal use of hands. I can't really tell. You know, it could have been. And, and then the conference breaks up and play resumes. Now, it doesn't happen a lot in the NFL. It happens a lot more in college, right, at a, at a presumably more amateur at a lower level. Right. And you say to yourself, I have no idea what, what they just did. Or, or, or there is a penalty, and they call it, and, but they forget to announce it, or they, they, they announce the wrong numbers. These sentiments in the course of a 60-minute game, you know, some, some of the, 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 the things, the, 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 the bits and pieces might get lost. Mm-hmm. In horse racing... Every time the stewards are asked to intervene or to, to look at it, and then they make a demotion, it is the equivalent of the, the, the umpires in a baseball game going in after the end of the game, going under the stadium, watching a replay, and coming out 10 minutes later and saying, hey, the, the result has been overturned. The, the the Dodgers ended up winning this game, and anybody who had a bet on the Braves, you've lost, and we're flipping the result. Well, that doesn't happen in any other professional sports, but it happens in ranks. And so the role of the official and the reporting element should be so much greater than what we get currently in all other sports where the officiating is happening as the event is going on. Right. Um, and at this fundamental level, we're saying, okay, you know, whatever, whatever interference rules philosophy you're applying, okay, well, you know, let, let, yeah, we, we can make that better too. But by gosh, we should be reporting what is actually happening and why the decisions were made that have plucked, you know, over the course of any given year, um, tens of millions of dollars in some cases uh, from from one set of betters and giving it to another. One set of owners and trainers, giving it to another. Uh, we don't do that well. 
And that's not a good sign of a prosperous sport. And, and these are these are the sorts of things that, that need to change. We need to be taking our sport more seriously. I completely agree. And uh, I, I said some similar things in the opener when I was um, saying that uh, you were going to be be coming on and for to talk about this this uh, issue, but uh, it, it, I think your analogy of, of yes, uh, after the game is over, going in down and coming back out ten minutes later and saying, yeah, oh yeah, by the way, uh, we're changing the result of the game. And I, I've been, you know, I've actively had a discussion about this for for a while, and I was, I, I am more in your corner with the category one now than I ever have been because I just don't think that. Um, I, I, I'd be honest, I don't know that you and I could talk about this till we're blue in the face and we can erupt on Twitter and we can, you can put out white papers and I can, you know, uh, you know, com- complain as much as, as I want. I, I don't know that we're actually, anyone's really paying attention. And that, that's the thing that bothers me the most is that. I don't know if anyone out there is saying, you know, this is a problem. We need to really take care of it because this business is really terrible, terrible about problems that they don't have an easy solution to. And that is something that, um, of of course, unlike other sports, each of the uh, steward stands is is a different makeup um, and they all answer to a uh, a different body. Um, but, um, so, so yes, it it is a little more difficult, but, but I think like you're, you've kind of swayed me in a lot of ways with the category one in that you're making it simply, you're simplifying it. You're making it an easier call. And I think people have to forget or have to remember too, um, that there's two parts to a, a a disqualification or, or as you say, a demotion, there's two parts to it. There's the actual, um, take down of the horse and then the second part of it is punishment for the jockeys and i never have felt that that the punishment is going to be severe enough to keep guys from taking shots because these days uh, the, the riding is so rough and they don't even try like you watch replays of, of races in the past some some of the great races breeders cup races some of the, the great stretch races and people aren't ducking in and out like they do these days where everybody comes you come into the lead uh the top of the stretch with the lead and you're drifting out and it, it happens and then if a horse comes on the inside well then you come back to the inside and they're all playing this this kind of russian roulette of how much can i get away with before they will disqualify me and it's dangerous and and it's gotten to the point where um like, like the last race in new york yesterday under the current rules i don't know how the horse in the last race yesterday that won wasn't disqualified because he clearly cost the horse who was second at the time uh second place money it it, he, it it's almost impossible to argue he didn't and yet they left him up because it wasn't like an egregious foul where the horse uh stumbled or, or you know had to take up like uh 
you know, drastically. It, but he he did have to steady, and he got beat an inch. And yeah. like, if you if if that's not going to be a disqualification, and then uh, two weeks later, the same thing is kind of going to be a disqualification because maybe the right. jockey on the second place horse acts a little, you know, does does a little. It's a little more dramatic, and 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 then pleads his case to the stewards a little better, which is always something uh, that I, I've been, you know, a huge. Uh, detractor of I said I think it's number one it's unfair that um, uh, you're you're going to put these guys on the racetrack in, in, in the in the same job, but um, a Jerry Bailey or a, a, a Pat Day is going to be much more able to um, sway a steward's opinion than um, a guy who's twelfth uh, on on the on the list or or a bug boy and and with the video we have now. I mean, we have the rules, and and uh, you know, you, you shouldn't really need to discuss it with the jockeys. And I mean, what are they supposed to say? And and like you said, with the category one rules, and I think it'd be better if you um, maybe if you explain the category one rules, what that is versus what we have now. Sure. So, um, and I want to raise a few kind of. Key, key points because there was a time that I thought the same thing about the the jockeys and the speaking to the stewards that, that, that it's not really valuable but I'll, I'll offer you a consideration as to why it might be more valuable than we think um, but yes, straight up to the, the basic rules philosophy where we are now in North America, I think everyone has a general feel um, but you cannot understate the fact that many states are different. So um, what could be upheld as a, as a demotable offense in Pennsylvania or Ohio may not be the case in Kentucky or New York or California. Wording is different. Interpretations, of course, are always different, but the wording is, is different. And so in, in a place like Ohio or Pennsylvania or New Jersey, a foul is a foul, more or less. If there is some sort of foul, you can be demoted for it. It doesn't matter whether you cost a horse another placing uh, or not. In a place like New York, uh, that is the sort of information that is very straightforward, where it says, you know, if this was a foul that altered the finish of the race or cost a horse a placing, then the horse may be demoted. So, so consideration of did it cost a particular horse uh, third or second instead of third or uh, any sort of placing, as we saw in the Kentucky Derby, the, the stewards made that decision. Uh, they believe that long-range Toddy would have finished ahead of, uh, of where he actually did as a result of the interference. And in, in this... Um, country where these rules are in place, it doesn't matter if that's 15th or 16th or 1st or 7th. So, that is the, the basic consideration. It did it alter the finish. Again, with variations from state to state. In Category 1, uh, which is in place, again, and has become in place in pretty much every country uh, on Earth, the consideration is if the foul did not occur, would the aggrieved horse have finished in front of the horse that did the interference? 
So if a horse wins the race and fouled a horse that ended up finishing fourth, the stewards would have to believe that that fourth-place finisher was going to finish in front of the winner. In almost every case, that's a very difficult argument to make unless it's a four-horse photo, right? Those those uh, objections or inquiries are almost never overturned. Um, and so there would be a dramatic reduction in the number of incidents. In any in-race incident, there is a party that is aggrieved. The degree to which they are aggrieved is uh, a variable, right? So sometimes they're, they're harmed a lot. Sometimes they're harmed a little. The monetary difference between second and third may be far greater one day at one track than another day at another track. Um, how much money is involved is, you know, that, that varies. But someone is always aggrieved. So whenever there is a decision to overturn a, 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 a finish or to, to leave a result alone, someone is going to feel as though they have not been, um, their interests have not been put ahead of, of someone else's. So you have to put that aside and say, you know, in any incident, someone has been harmed. The current rules that we have in place in North America, they promote what I call total equity. They focus on being as as fair as possible. There was an incident. It may have cost me another placing. I am going to, to be beyond considerate of, of your rights as the, as the horse that was fouled and the connections of the horse that was fouled, and we are going to promote you because of that. It doesn't matter that you finished fourth beaten 17 lengths in the first race of parks today. Uh, after a one-to-nine shot, uh, clipped heels in what certainly seemed like a fairly ordinary kind of racing incident. There was not a huge check involved. There was not a big drift. The horse looked to be clear. Um, it happened five and a half furlongs from the finish line, and the horse that ends up winning goes on and wins by, by a, a, a chasm, Okay. Uh, it was a massive space, and I'm, I'm, I'll get the exact answer. But because that horse ended up fourth, and the stewards say, well, could it have cost him third? Yeah, maybe. Um, they, they say, well, we're going to be totally fair here. We are going to promote the interests of this horse that was aggrieved. Five and a half furlongs from the finish in a six furlong race, ignoring the fact that the winner of this of this race, mind you, at one to nine, although that doesn't really come into the equation, and I've just checked it, Chuck, was a fifteen and a quarter length winner. That horse, forget all of that. The harm that was suffered five and a half furlongs from the finish may have cost that horse third. Mind you, the difference between third and fourth was $850 in prize money. Mm -hmm. um, that is category two. Total fairness on the, the, the rights of the aggrieved party. 
um, those the, the aggrieved party's rights are promoted. Uh, whereas in Category 1, the stewards are asked to look at the preponderance of the race, everything that has taken place in front of them. And they say, based on what we know and how things looked, was the horse that was fouled going to finish ahead of the horse that fouled it? And this has spread across the world in, you know, especially the last 10 years or so. France and Germany were holdouts in Europe. They moved over uh, to this uh, a few years ago, um, thinking that it was it was best to be uniform, standard. And uh, it looks at, at what has actually happened to say, should we reverse this result? Now, mind you, the, as things stand today, the margin doesn't really come into to consideration. What has actually happened in the race doesn't matter a whole lot. It matters tremendously in Category 1. So in today's first race at Parks, the, the, the horse that first passed the wire goes out to the lead, clips heels with a horse that it was, may have just ever so slightly not been clear of um, right out of the start. Mm-hmm. Goes on, wins by 15 and a quarter, and that horse um, ends up being the 18 and a half lengths and finished fourth and gets promoted into third. The, you know, there, there is no circumstance where that horse would have ever been promoted anywhere else in the world but in North America today. Um, but that decision was made by the park stewards. And mind you, Pennsylvania is a state where altering the finish does not come into the equation of the rules. Um, so a foul uh, can be demoted for basically any reason. Whereas, based on what we saw in that race, and what you watched sitting at the stoplight, you say, yeah, I know these horses clipped heels. I, I may not have seen the head on, but man, this horse won. This horse is easily the best horse in the race. And this fourth-place finisher had five-and-a-half furlongs left to show some element that he was going to, to come and run down this horse. And some could never happen. And that incident is being blamed uh, or, or is, has become the justification for this demotion. Um, but it ignores the actual results of the race, which made it clear that, that the winner... Uh, was was so far and away the best horse in the race. Right. So it's um, it, it's the it's the question that becomes the the, the 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 deciding factor here is: Do I promote the rights of the aggrieved at basically almost all expense? The rights of the aggrieved are promoted most in Category Two. Whereas in Category 1, the stewards will look at the race and say, between the horse that did the fouling and the horse that was fouled, what's the fairest outcome here? Do we think that that horse was really going to have finished ahead of, uh, of the aggrieved horse? And, and everywhere else in the world today, they would have said no in that first race of parks. But um, in, in Ben Salem, they said yes. And... Uh, 
Um, or they, they didn't say yes under the Category 1 standard. I mean, they applied the, uh, the existing rule. And there will be times where people look at this and say it's not great. There will be times the other way. They'll say, you know, this, this wasn't the best decision uh, or this seems slightly unfair. Those, those situations will always exist. But it's about trying to find a fairer, more respectful result for the confines of that particular race and performance. And then, as you rightly point out, apply a legitimate penalty to the jockey for maybe failing to, to be clear of that horse from shifting ground and, and apply a legitimate penalty. But otherwise, those who were uh, who staked maybe uh, $70,000 on that first race at Parks today uh, saw the result changed, and the real beneficiary was the uh, was was the minority of the money that was on the eighteen to one shot that got promoted. Right, no doubt, and and I believe that the key to category ones is inflicting enough of a penalty where um, the the riders won't just take advantage of the situation. I mean, and of course, one of the difficult things that. Um, I guess it's not that much different than than regular sports either, uh, is that you have wildly different income levels for jockeys who are riding in the same races. You have a guy like uh, Irad Ortiz, and he's riding against a, um, you know, whoever the 14th rated jockey in New York is, and they're in the same race. Well, you could find Irad Ortiz... 2500 bucks, and he'll write the check and not think anything of it. You f- you find a bug boy 2500 you might have to borrow money from his agent to pay it. And so uh, that, that's one of the issues I think that that exists in that uh, um, if, if uh, it was a couple of years ago, there was an internet debate about about finding trainers more money as opposed to giving them days. And uh, uh, one guy came out with this idea where, like, like the first the first fine would be like ten grand, and like you know it would work its way up to like a quarter million dollars. And I said, "Listen, buddy, I don't know if you realize it, but we're not NBA players. <laughs> we we don't make very we don't make that kind of money. Like if if you find a, a trainer fifty thousand dollars, ninety five percent of the trainers in America." Uh, would need to take out a loan or, or uh, to, to to pay it. They they wouldn't be able to write that check, and and that's the thing that that you know to, to me is is a little bit of a um, of an issue in that you know uh, a pen uh, if if you're going in an eight hundred thousand dollar race and the jockey's looking at maybe a a five thousand dollar penalty. Well, if he if he commits the foul and he still wins the race, he'll be willing to pay that. It'll be the cost of doing business if he's going to win that that kind of race. Or, I mean, you know, ratchet up to the Breeders' Cup races where you have five or six million dollars. And I I, my question would be this too: would be if if we had a a situation, and and this was I talked to to someone who's a lawyer about this, and he said. I said, well, what if we attached it to the, the purse of the race itself? Because there's not a lot of jockeys who are in the lower income level winning big money races. So 
Um, and he said, well, the problem you would have was if you got to um, uh, really, you know, Breeders' Cup type races or Triple Crown type races, the penalty would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they would probably, depending on what state they are, probably you know, litigate that and say it's it's excessive and, um, you know. Either- to, to this point overall, Chuck, uh, the my personal experience has been dramatically influenced by the three years I spent in Hong Kong. Um, it was not just a tremendous racing experience, but a, a tremendous learning uh, opportunity to see how racing is regulated in one of the world's most respected and most successful racing jurisdictions. And I'm a firm believer that if someone's doing something well, uh, you should be trying to replicate it somewhere where there's opportunities to do something well. And what I saw in Hong Kong is that jockeys are fined and suspended based on a, on a particular scale. The suspensions are the same based on the, uh, the, the incident, uh, and how many times a particular jockey has, has suffered uh, such a similar penalty throughout the season. So if this is the first offense versus a second, third, fourth, fifth, there is an increasing scale of suspensions. But as it relates to fines, the fines are commensurate with the average earnings of each jockey. So that in a particular race, um, the baseline penalty for a um, for a careless riding charge, if the rider's found guilty, was uh, two Hong Kong race days, which is essentially one week. Right, they run two days a week, plus uh, the equivalent of one half of a day's average earnings. There's 88 race days in Hong Kong. They take what you uh, averaged um, over the, the previous year. Say, here's the average daily earnings. It's X number of dollars, and the base suspension or the base fine is one half of that amount. And as your incidents increase over the course of the year, or if there is some outlier incident, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, a failure to ride out, or um, you know, that may be met with a larger suspension and a larger fine, for example. But it, it, it allows riders of any quality, you know, the one for a hundred jockey versus the thirty for a hundred jockey who's got a couple graded stakes to his name. Uh, they are treated the same from a penalty standpoint, so that essentially their wallet is hit by a proportional amount. Sure. And that seems an incredibly fair way to assess penalties. And I wish that sort of thing was applied here because you would feel that uh, in a much more equitable fashion. That That's very true. The, the difficulty here is that Hong Kong is a singular place. There's no you know, guys aren't shipping to other places. For, they're, 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 it's the same people, you know, it's and, uh, you know, I, I, I was over there for about 10 days. I ran a horse there in, I think, 2005. And, um, you know, I talked to the, some of the local trainers. And, I mean, they, they live in um, actual kind of fear. <laughs> you know, the trainers don't socialize with jockeys. And jockeys aren't supposed to socialize with each other. And, and uh, there's, uh, you know, they told me they had had investigators that would follow, literally follow them around it. 
you know, integrity is a, is a far different, uh, uh, a far different, uh, thing there than it is here. I wish uh, there was so many things that, that we could, we could do that they do, but one of them is, is just the money, the massive amount of money that they, they handle over there. It just gives them an ability to do a lot of the things they do. And, and the other thing is that it's a closed circuit. You know, there's, there's, there's no one in, there's no one out. The backsides are, are very, well, the backside. I mean, I know there's the, the new facility in the mainland now, but you know, there was one backside. It was, uh, you had to use a handprint to get in. Um, it was, it was security was, was very, very, very tight there. But, uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, Pat. And, and what we have now is just not working. And I just hope that, um, that we can get enough attention on this subject where the people that can change things can, can, you know, start to look at different ways of doing things. And, uh, at the very least, I, I really believe that our stewards need more, more training. I think that, um, it's an inadequate way of, of doing things that you look at the way other sports and, and granted it's, it's a little bit of a different, um, dynamic because they're, they're officiating in real time, but they're graded. They are, um, every decision they make is, is, is graded as being the right decision, the wrong decision. And, um, they answer to, um, they have the, there's someone that's answerable to, and they also, uh, they'll clarify things. They'll use film. They'll use things like that. And, and with zoom technology that we've, we've, you know, been seeing used over the last uh, six months, it's kind of exploded. This kind of thing can be, uh, these kind of races can be shown to stewards around the play around the country you don't need to get them all in the same room you can show the video you can you can hear the reasoning behind why it was a, a the right call or why it wasn't the right call and and I, I just think that that itself would would help create a little bit more of uh, consistency and i understand that the rules are a little bit different from from place to place but but it just seems as though uh Professional licensees could use more continuing education um, because we need to get better. And I don't know that we can get better uh, just changing the rules. Sometimes the people that are adjudicating the rules are the problem. And yeah. that is is uh, a nice way of saying that maybe some of the guys we have are, are women too. We're, it's not as... It's not, just the uh, uh, the male dominated um, you know judges stand but completely agree ma- and, ma- you and know, this ma- is coming check from someone who sat as part of my role at the end of every race day with the stewards as they were going through the penalties that they were giving out for the day talking to jockeys after the races um, I, I got to sit there and witness that for three years, and I would occasionally bring in guests at the, the permission of the stewards to, to, to show visitors what this process was like and how they would go through the races. And 
it would make you, it, it, it would make any racing fan or horse player in this country stand up and say, man, is this the way they do it over there? Like, why can't we have that? Like, this is unbelievable. You know, they're, they're, they're doing some tremendous things. I was in awe of it. And there was great news last year. The Jockey Club came out and said that they were going to fund an exchange program to, to give additional training to stewards and to train up-and-coming stewards. Uh, and part of that was essentially like an apprenticeship overseas, uh, you know, a, a, an eight- or, or, or 12-week uh, course overseas in Australia or Hong Kong or Singapore or Korea to see how it's done. And, you know, I feel as though um, our racing fans, when they, when they see... Uh, stewards videos where, where they have a panel and they bring the jockeys in and they sit down and they're talking to them and there's deliberations and, and you get a little bit of feel for how that, that's working. People sit up and say, man, look at this. this. This seems very professional. Whereas here in America, it's just a guy on a phone or, or a girl on a phone. And it doesn't feel as though they're even connected to the race. Uh, connected to the jockeys, the very people they are meant to be overseeing. And that disconnect is bad, I think, for the health of the sport and the oversight that the sport should have and that we should want our customers to have and our, the people who are populating our races to have. Those are good things. They should be good for business. We, I think there's an opportunity for state in this uh, country uh, or, or a province in Canada to differentiate themselves based on transparency. And we're starting to see Kentucky move in that direction, right? The, the stewards reports are now uh, being shared directly. Um, that's a, it's a baby step, but it's a right, it's the right direction to be going as opposed to doing nothing. And, it is that sort of thing that we need to take that and evolve with it. We're not going to be Hong Kong overnight. We're not going to be Japan tomorrow. Um, but don't you want to be that? Don't you want to try and get to some element where there's where every day is Kentucky Derby Day in terms of betting? Um, you know, there are elements that are not replicable, but we should be trying to replicate the ones that are. Right. And that is what our reporting on transparency in Category 1 and trying to lift the standards of our rules and our processes and try and get more fair outcomes, greater confidence in our sport. Uh, confidence breeds participation. We need to be doing those things and moving in that direction. And right now, uh, it's very stale. And in some jurisdictions, it is far more stale than others. Those are problems. Um, and, and I point to the commissions, I point to the stewards, I point to the, point to the tracks. Uh, and, and in some cases, you almost would have to say, too, that, that the, the actual licensees themselves, um, they should be wanting it, too. Right? That it's going to make their product more important, more attentive. Um, I, I think this is a, a, a case check where a rising tide can lift uh, all the ships of any size. Um, if there is a greater attentiveness to these matters, no, no doubt about it. And uh, there's two things I want to I want to put a um, 
want to add to what you just said. And one of them is, uh, I think that the stewards should not just be talking to the jockeys. I think that the stewards have a responsibility to talk to the trainers and the connections of these horses when you see these wild form reversals. And I Absolutely. think that they should be called on the carpet and say, why did this happen? And, you know, what did you do differently? You know, and, and have it be confidential. Of course, you, you can't just make, you know, no one's going to, I don't think it's fair to, to make that a public record. But I think that it needs to be done. Um, I, I know that when I worked way, way back in the early 90s when I worked at Yonkers, the, the stewards would call trainers in when, um, and, and they would say, you know, what, what's the deal? This horse has never shown any speed, and now he leaves from the seven hole and he clears by three. You know what? What made you guys decide to do that tonight? <laughs> and and you know you 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 put someone on the spot and make them. Um, and, and listen, I, I've trained enough horses that have surprised me. Where I would say to them, honestly, I have no idea why this horse ran good. I, I mean, you know, I, I he just he's been training fine and and just uh, maybe you know for whatever happened and sometimes like circumstances as well if, if there's a massive speed duel in a race and a horse just kind of clunks up and you know you, you have to have some context but i think that knowing that someone's watching i think that that matters and the other thing is that um i, I play the metal ends a lot the harness and I'm telling you, one of the reasons is that, and, and, and I do not agree with all of, of his takes, but I think Jeff Correll does a, a, has been an industry leader in, in this country in making integrity a part of uh, the program. And he's gone to some extreme steps. And um, yes, there, there are people that sneak through the cracks. But I think that a track, a thoroughbred track that would make integrity and really, really do it, not just provide lip service to it, but actually stand up um, and and say, we're not going to have questionable people involved in our racing program anymore. And that's just the way it is. And uh, I think that they would, I think that they would benefit greatly I would think I really do. I think that, uh, and again, you, you couldn't just play at lip service. You couldn't just say, you know what, we're 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 going to double and triple test everybody, and then guys still win forty two percent, and uh, no one believes it. And, and I think that's part of the problem with the even with the the um, the uh, integrity act is that I I said this to people. I don't think you're going to see any tangible difference for a while, if at all, because. Some of the things that they're going to change aren't things that you're going to see. The whip rules are far more, um, I think, will have a far bigger impact because you'll see it. You're, you're going to see a guy coming down the stretch, and you're going to see the horse tiring, and you're used to seeing the, the jockey go to the stick, and now they can't do it. <laughs> and, and I think that's something that's going to be a tangible thing that you're seeing. Um, a trainer be, not being able to give an anti-inflammatory 48 hours out but making it you know 7 days out well you're probably not going to be able to tie in the horse's performance with that it, it just i mean no one could 
when no one knew that in the state of Kentucky, like when I started training, you could give literally 17 or 18 shots within 24 hours of the race, including anabolic steroids. No one was saying, oh, the races in Kentucky aren't legit. No one was saying that. And I get there wasn't social media, and, and then it was a different, um, you know, it was a different tone. But it's it's hard to go back and say, uh, well, this horse that uh, you know, Monarcos, his 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 race isn't legit because he might have got you know seven shots before the race, and uh, but uh, this horse that won uh, two years ago, he is legit because you know, no one says that, and and, and because it's hard to tell, it's hard to see, and a lot of times people. Drug use in this country is attached to um, performance changes. It's not actually just the performance. It's the change in performance. If a horse is a steady 70 buyer type horse who suddenly gets new connections and runs 95s, the assumption is that they're doing something illegal. And that's the thing that testing, uh, you got to catch people. you got to catch them. And, and I, I don't think the controls that exist in places like Hong Kong are, are replicable in that sense. There are elements that are. But to your point, asking people after the fact to put an explanation on record uh, is helpful. And it's not giving away secret sauce, but it is, you know, to your very simple example, asking how did a horse that has shown no speed in anywhere in its form suddenly end up three in front today what what is the rationale could you what were your instructions going into the race what were your expectations going into the race and one of the interesting things is uh ask the the jockey and the trainer separately what the instructions were going into the race yes right see what the see what the explanation is there sure and that that's something that's done in many places around the world um, and if there is a if there is a big difference, uh, then you have a story, uh, yeah. and you and you you can follow up on that. We we don't seem to have um, a a proper reporting and airing of these sorts of matters, at least in thoroughbred racing. Um, and I, I do believe it is it is something that can be replicated. It can be observed, and, and, and steps can be taken. Again, you start small, but you you expand. Um, you try not to, to require people to stick to tactics and circumstances change and split times are different and the pace can be slow and the pace can be fast and that affects a lot of different things. And, and professional stewards should be understanding those things, right? They should, they should understand what the, 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 the typical split times are for a particular race and when it, the pace is, is exceptionally fast or not. Uh, and they should know if there's five speed horses in the race or not because they will have done their their full form in advance of the race. Sure. Um, but we can't get to a, a better society for, for for the sport until we start seeing a couple jurisdictions kind of moving in that direction. We're never going to get there unless we start trying. And and our take on these things is to try. Uh, as it relates to the talking to trainers and talking to jockeys, the one thing I, I think is well worth saying is that almost everywhere else in the world, the jockeys and trainers on race day will meet face-to-face with the stewards in a room at ground level. And many times the stewards' rooms are, are very near 
trainers, uh, or, or excuse me, they're in your jockey's rooms, um, or, or on the way to a jockey's room. And that is a, you know, they're essentially co-located. Uh, and and uh, stewards will review races and interview jockeys face-to-face near that room. Um, I completely agree with you on the, the way in which a, a veteran, uh, perhaps a native English speaker, will communicate their case on a, any particular situation, uh, that there are some natural advantages there. But I would go a step farther and suggest that if you have three, jock, uh, three stewards or uh, five stewards and none of them understand Spanish and three-quarters of your jockey's room are native Spanish speakers, it is wrong. It's not, you know, it's not illegal, but it's wrong to not have someone serve in an interpretive fashion. You, know, you need to protect the event by having someone who can communicate directly in that same language. Um, uh, and, and I saw it in Hong Kong. There was an interpreter there. The, you know, roughly half the, the jockeys are Chinese. Uh, if there was a visiting Japanese jockey or, uh, or, or you had someone uh, French who was coming over for a period of time or Italian, uh, there would be interpreters that would, that would at least be there for the early days of those jockeys coming in to ride. Um, and, and that was seen as, as part of uh, the integrity of the sport. Uh, knowing how uh, replete our jockeys' room, rooms are with native Spanish speakers, it is unthinkable to have three stewards uh, and, and not having someone that is, is understanding Spanish and, and at least getting a, a full interpretation of what is being said. Um, and, and what's crazy is you know, people would suggest to me, well, you know, this will really slow things down. If you're talking to, to jockeys and trainers during the day or at the end of the day, listen, it doesn't. Um, many other jurisdictions run on time. Um, so it, it can be done. It should be done. It's appropriate. It's fair. Uh, it's the right thing to do, and, and it is the way in which we should go. There's no argument, Chuck, that proper integrity, fuller measures of transparency, they come with a cost. The question is, how much are we willing to lose by continuing to let this system fester as it has, right? If, if we continue to move in the direction we're moving, it's highly negative, trends downward, it's bad for the sport. If we lift those standards, if we choose to spend on these measures, uh, not just drug testing, like you said with the federal bill, you know, we've been doing that for a long time. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't those tests that they caught Lance Armstrong, that's for sure. Um, but we should be spending money to ensure proper, modern standards of oversight of the race, communications between stewards and trainers, stewards and jockeys, uh, give them the tools of the trade that they need to properly view the race, uh, to communicate properly. Uh, and, and I think that th- these types of things will be not just uh, actual signals, but they will be sending um, emotive signals. They, 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 will be, they will be signaling to the public that, that this is a different sport and it's being treated differently. I think that's good for business. Um, 
it's good for customer confidence and it's good for horse player confidence. And and that should, should be good for business, right? We should be taking all steps possible to increase participation in our sport. We have not been doing that. And it is incredibly frustrating as an American to come back here three years later and, and see where we stand today versus where we were in the past um, and, and where other people are. And there is a massive, massive gap between those. Uh, I want to see America. Uh, I want to make American racing great again, Chuck. I had to say it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, I appreciate your time, <laughs> and uh, it's a good way to go out. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank uh, you. Appreciate it, and uh, be well. Appreciate, appreciate your time, Pat. Thank you. That's Pat Cummings of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, and um, we have to do something because these the stewards are, are these decisions are just uh, getting more and more uh, more and more bad. They, they just shine a bad light on the sport, and uh, we have to try to figure out how to do this better. Um, Casey, do we have a, a guest on the line? Hello? Gabby? Yes. This is Gabby Sanchez. Yes. Gabby, Gabby Sanchez, Sanchez. Of the, the Cowboy Channel. The Cowboy Channel. So tell me quickly, the the Cowboy Channel, it's a, a cable TV channel that's horse centric that that's starting to um, starting to follow racing, and and you're doing some interviews. Yes, um, Jeff Meters uh, is the executive producer, and he was involved in quarter horse racing in his earlier days. So he kind of took over the Cowboy Channel, and he wants to bring in horse racing. So. Um, the production manager, Eric Sarita, hit me up knowing I was born and raised in the horse racing business and said, hey, I got the great idea, great person to kind of bring in horse racing. So they're kind of t- testing it out this year. I covered the, the Belmont, the Kentucky, the Preakness. We were able to interview trainers as the Sassy Joseph, Barclay Tag, Kenny McPeak that just won the uh, you know Preakness with Swiss Skydiver. A little bit later on this afternoon, in 30 minutes, we're going to interview Robbie Alvarado. And we also had Johnny Velasquez on our show. But we're also bringing in quarter horse racing as well. And we had Blaine Wood, second time winner for the All-American Fraternity, and Ricky Ramirez, which was the first time this jockey won that same race, the prestigious race, which is equivalent to the Kentucky Derby. The, the, all, the All-American Fraternity. Yes, All American Fraternity, which is ran in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's ran every Labor Day weekend. This was the first year, and probably the last year in history, that the All American Fraternity and the Kentucky Derby were ran in the same weekend. Because the COVID Kentucky Derby was moved from uh, May all the way to September. Fortunately, the All American Fraternity still kind of kept the same date, so it ran the All American Fraternity Labor Day weekend, which is always on that Monday. So for the first time in history, you have the same race that's equivalent to each other in quarter horse racing and thoroughbred racing running the same weekend, a couple days apart. Well, 2020 has made for some uh, strange partnerships and strange uh, 
circumstances, and, and certainly that is one that probably won't be replicated, having the those two races, which are usually held uh, months apart on the same weekend. But um, it's nice to hear that the Cowboy Channel is, is uh, you know, looking at racing because uh, obviously there's um, it, it, it's a popular sport, both you know, thoroughbreds and quarter horses, and uh, um, I'm, I'm happy that you're getting the opportunity to uh, to expose uh, oh. some of these trainers and, and, and jockeys, uh, you know, to a new audience. Well, thank you very much. And you know what? Really, we've got to um, thank Jeff Meters. You know, being the executive producer, uh, the Cowboy Channel really focuses on rodeos throughout the country, uh, college, professional rodeos, um, East Coast and West Coast, they cover it. Uh, he actually started as uh, a host of the AQHA TV show, America's Hope. Um, but Meters was also involved in, in uh, rodeo. He was inducted into the Texas Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame two years ago in 2018. Now, what his dream, as he quoted, that he will help to expand the Cowboy Channel and improve their relationship within the industry, but also so that he's kind of taking that extra leap and not just involving um, the rodeo, but trying to uh, bring in horse racing into their business and to their audience, expanding, you know, what kind of in this era where 2020, the COVID, a lot of sports were limited, you know, football, basketball, baseball, a lot of them were shut down. Fortunately, golf was one of the very few tracks that stayed open as you're aware of, you know, Chuck being here in Florida. But this actually allowed horse racing to touch so many different types of people, um, genres, and, and normal viewers that normally would not watch horse racing because they're busy watching their sports, but because everything is just completely constant in the air this year, I feel that it gives us a great opportunity to expand and and introduce horse racing to new fans, new people, and hopefully we get new new fans into our business and industry. Well, it's, it's a great opportunity for you, and, and I'm happy that um, that the Cowboy Channel is, is looking into racing. And uh, like you said, you, you're, I agree 100% that you have a demographic that already is interested in horses. So, um, you know, showing the best of our racing, the, the Triple Crown races, uh Certainly is is uh, something that maybe some of the people that follow rodeos and other other sports um, that uh, the cowboys follow, uh, you know, would have some interest in, in racing. But um, amazing to me, I think it's a great opportunity that horse racing gets to expand. Being born and raised in this business, coming from New Mexico and coming to Florida. You kind of see the, you know, the, you do have fans, but we're limited on the exposure, the people that we reach out to. Uh, usually the, the big channels only cover horse racing for the big races, the triple crown races, uh, and, of course, including the, the Breeders' Cup, which is coming up in November. Prior to that, there's been a lot of people, friends of mine that I talked to, and they actually have this mentality of the only time we won races is for the Kentucky Derby. You know, just the races that are shown on national TV, they think these are the only three, four races of the year, but they're not unaware of the exposure and exactly what horse racing is, what it involves, how many times the horses run. So there's way more underneath the layer of dirt that we're being exposed to. So thanks to the Cowboy Channel, they're actually helping us um, show 
show what horse racing is about. How it's not just Kentucky Derby, it's in the Belmont. You know, there's been races in between the claiming crown. Then you got, you know, derbies throughout the country from north to south, east to west. That it's more than just the Kentucky Derby and horse racing. And this, I think, is the year that we're able to show and shine as an industry and try to bring in fans and, you know, introduce them to our world as we're being introduced to their world as well. Yes, that's that's a great thing. Gabby, I, I appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time, and good luck with your interview uh, later on. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck, for having me on the show. I appreciate it, and I hope that this is the only time and we could uh, hit chat a little bit more about horse racing. Sounds great. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you. All right, that's Gabby Sanchez. She is a correspondent for the, the Cowboy Channel, which is a... Uh, cable tv show uh network uh dealing with uh horse sports and they've kind of uh delved into racing a little bit which is uh, a positive sign um before we go i want to uh express my deepest regrets to the jameson family um kimber jameson lost her her husband john today um to john had complications from a surgery from um some sort of uh, some sort of injury that he had that um, uh, John uh, I met John a few years ago and he came to uh, South Florida to be the track superintendent at uh, Gulfstream Palmettos and Gulfstream Park West and he was a great guy he was uh, a guy that loved racing he, he'd done a lot of different things in racing uh, he's been a starter and he's built tracks he's he's uh, He's a really uh, a, a stand-up guy, and uh, with a great family. His wife Kimber was the, the clocker at, at Palmettos for a while, and uh, they're really, really great people. And uh, it's a shocking thing to have a, a healthy guy like that. Uh, um, he had a surgery yesterday, and it seemed like he uh, he was doing better. And then today, the news came down that uh, he had passed away, and um. There's just no way of uh, you know being prepared for that, and and uh, you know my sympathy goes out to his family and uh, his friends and uh, and the racing community that uh, he's he's touched over the years, and uh, it's a somber way to end the show, but um, but um, it's just another uh, another way that this year has just been. Uh, you know, life-altering for so many, so many people. So I, w- I do want to appreciate. Uh, excuse me. I do uh, want to thank uh, Henry Colazzo for coming on and sharing his uh, his Calder experience, and Pat Cummings for uh, talking about uh, an issue that makes people nuts: uh, stewards, stewards disqualifications, or. Um, that lack of disqualifications and uh, Gabby Sanchez for her uh, introduction to uh, the Cowboy Channel and uh, and I really appreciate everyone listening and and all the support that you've given this the show and and the podcasts and our listeners uh, the the numbers just keep increasing and uh, I do appreciate it and uh, and if you do have any feedback or want to make suggestions or or have any topics that you want covered or, or people that you would like to hear from. Just uh, 
just drop an email at uh, um, going in circles podcast at gmail, or you can find me at Twitter at Cannon Shell, or on Facebook on the Going in Circles podcast page, or or under Charles Simon. Um, we do appreciate uh, listening, and, and we we uh, we we like your participation too. That it uh, it helps uh, it helps us come up with uh, topics that people are interested in. So uh, I want to thank uh, Casey. Thank you for uh, guiding us through. And um, until next week, we'll talk to you again. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast.